Welcome to the Off Ramps Podcast. I'm your host and co-founder of the Off Ramp, Kristen. We know what it's like to feel helpless when faced with the magnitude of the world's problems. You want to do something about it, but don't know how or where to start. Well, that's why we're here. At the Off Ramp, our goal is twofold. First, to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and global affairs. And second, to connect you with opportunities to make a real difference in the lives of forcibly displaced people both near and far. Practical and positive change is possible. Let's work together to make it happen. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the Off Ramps podcast. Mom, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Good, good. Well, we want to share with you this amazing interview with an equally amazing person, Sharla Shaver of Masters Handicrafts in a moment. And we're going to tell you a little bit about what's in that interview also in a moment. But as we have done over the past few episodes, I would like to jump in with kind of what I'm calling our news updates. And this time, instead of offering you several, I really just wanted to focus on one. And frankly, it's not a very happy one, but it's one that I think we we need to honor in this moment. And one that I personally feel is not getting the, the news recognition that it warrants in this part of the world. I'm not sure if you realize this, but March of 2021 marks the 10th year of war in Syria. Now, right now there is a ceasefire, but it's it's pretty fragile, a ceasefire in, in the Northwest. Um, fragile, but holding, at least for now. But even as this ceasefire holds, there are nearly a million newly displaced people that are still stuck in limbo. And, and it seems like real peace remains distant. After 10 years, half of the Syrian population has been forced to flee their homes. Half of the entire country's population. More than 5.5 million are refugees in the region, while hundreds of thousands more are scattered across 130 countries. Another 6.7 million Syrians have also been internally displaced. So again, when we talk about displacement, there's refugees who are pushed beyond their country's borders. And then there are people who are internally displaced where they've had to leave their homes, but they remain within their country's borders. In 10 years, hardly any town or village in Syria has been spared the violence and the humanitarian suffering and deprivation. Layer with that, COVID-19. And a combination of waning aid as a result of the COVID-19 induced economic downturn. This has driven Syrian refugees to unseen levels of desperation. So even beyond Syria's borders where this war is, is, is still a reality, beyond Syria, the lives of these refugees who have been forced to leave their homes after suffering unimaginable trauma. Their situations reach a new level of desperation because the global community simply doesn't have the economic resources to sustain them in the way that they would have had we not been in the middle of a global pandemic. In Lebanon, nine out of 10 Syrians live now in extreme poverty. The loss of livelihoods, rising unemployment, and COVID-19 have also pushed millions of their Jordanian, Lebanese, Turkish, and Iraqi hosts below the poverty line. So we're seeing this, the, the consequences of COVID-19 and the, the limited resources that countries have to dedicate to the fallout from this war really result in increased suffering among these populations. That is not to say though, that there hasn't been a positive 
and helpful and compassionate response to the plight of Syrian refugees. We have been witness to extraordinary generosity that has saved millions of Syrian lives. In fact, Syria's neighbors, the neighboring countries, have sheltered millions of refugees, shouldering massive responsibilities. Beyond the region, a groundswell of solidarity with Syrian refugees has driven many governments to shift policies and offer genuine gestures of help to these refugees and to refugee hosting countries through resettlement, family reunifications, humanitarian visas, scholarships, and other safe and legal pathways for Syrian refugees. Mom, so I've, I've brought this piece of our conversation to our listeners, but I, I would love for you to chime in. At this 10-year mark, you have friends who are Syrian, whose families have been directly affected by the war and by forced displacement. What do you know of sort of the lived experience of this war and perhaps what we can learn from it? So yeah, I do have dear friends um, who are very uh, connected to this particular crisis. Um, Janae Angel and Hari Kano um, live and work in Antwerp, Belgium. And uh, Hari is Syrian. Um, and they spent years, not, not months, not weeks, they spent years um, working to get various members of his family out of the crisis. Um, one particular incident um, happened um, with a family of four. The mother uh, was able to uh, find asylum somewhere. <clears throat> the children and the father were working on it. When and these are children all under the age of 18, when the father passed away. And so then the children were stuck and could not get to their mother. Um, and what they went through to get out of Syria, get documents, um, and get to a place of safety is just unbelievable. Um, but Janae and Hari worked tirelessly um, on helping put connections in place and helping them get to proper authorities. It's, you don't just walk away from conflict. You don't just get up one day and say, oh, hey, I think I'll walk out of the country and I think I'll go someplace else. Um, the United States is currently accepting more refugees than we have in the past few years. But even then, we need to remember that the United States is not the number one country in the world for uh, welcoming refugees. That honor goes to Turkey. And right now, Turkey has over three and a half million Syrian refugees in their country. Um, they remain um, the country to host the largest number of refugees worldwide. Um, and then besides the Syrians that they're hosting, um, they, they host over 300,000 people of you know, other um, status, whether they're asylum seekers or refugees from other countries. This puts a tremendous burden on neighboring countries. Um, so I think it's important for us to realize that when we have a refugee crisis, it's not just a crisis for that country. It's a crisis for our, for our whole world. It's a global crisis. And, uh, so, yeah, we need to be a part of addressing that. And you're right to bring it up, to not let it get off our radar. For me, these are real faces. These are real people um, that still continue to impact the lives of, of my friends and people that I love. Um, so um, thank you for keeping it at, at the forefront. Next, we have our interview with Sharla Shaver uh, of Masters Handicrafts, and, and we recorded this interview prior to us recording this piece of the podcast. And typically, it's at this point in our podcast where I ask you for uh, an update about the off-ramp, but when we were talking about it, really, the interview with Sharla is the update about the off-ramp. It is, um, it is. Yeah, so, um, and, and I'm sure we'll catch up with some of our other folks later on in the year, but um, 
Master's Handicraft is one of the very first that um, will be a part of our new way of, of engaging with our clients of the off-ramp. Um, you know, we've put some of our new processes in place um, and we've kind of outlined um, where, where the needs are and where we're going to go. Um, and one of those things is product development. So, uh, yeah, we've already got some new things, uh, which I'll leave that surprise for the for the podcast. But we've got some new product that you've been working with them on. Um, I think, though, for me, one of the things that has come out about the podcast uh, through this podcast and, <clears throat> and other things we've said is really the symbiotic relationship that exists between the off-ramp and threads. The off-ramp is able to come in and to do consults and to help and to, uh, you know, help people further their markets and develop their products as, you know, as you know, sometimes even grants to help with some of these things. But then once, a, once we reach a point where, yes, here's a viable product, we have threads that can help promote it. And so actually uh, the master's handicraft started out as a threads partner and now has moved into uh, being one of one of the stakeholders, one of the people that we have working um, with the off-ramp. So I'm very excited about it. I think one of the things that came through for me, which I'm not surprised in most of our engagement with Sharla has been via email. Uh, I think we had one phone call um, in the past, um, but Charlotte's humility really comes through on the podcast. Um, we see what she has done and is doing as amazing and unbelievable. And of course, her products that, that comes through the master's handicraft on threads, we feel the same way about, um, but boy, do you hear her humility um, and just the fact that she just got there and just did what she could do and, you know, let it, let it take its own course. It was very organic. So I'm, I'm excited that we're able to move into this next level of a relationship with the master's handicraft and yeah, the podcast is the update. Good morning, everyone. We are here with Sharla Shaver, who is a, a longtime email friend, but this is actually the first time we are getting to talk with her and see her through video. I feel like I've known her for a long time now, but um, we are so excited for this conversation. Sharla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's amazing to be able to join you today from Kyrgyzstan. I know. So Charlotte, uh, Charlotte is the founder, for those of you who don't know, which I'm assuming most of you don't, Charlotte is the founder of Masters Handicrafts. Ma Masters Handicrafts, some of you may have heard of through Threads by Nomad, our subsidiary and the e-commerce component of the off-ramp. Uh, Masters Handicrafts is the company, the organization that makes all of our felted goods. So a lot of our, our Christmas nativities and ornaments, the wreath, the nativity wreath that everyone is sort of obsessed with right now is from Masters Handicrafts. Anytime we say that something is made in collaboration with our partners in Kyrgyzstan, it's really uh, a collaboration between us and, and Sharla and the people who work with her. So this is a uh, this is the first time that, like I said, we're getting to, to see you and to talk to you. I'm so excited. Mom, how long have we worked with Charlotte now? I was trying to think about that. So it's, it's been a little over three years. Um, we had actually already started Threads by Nomad. We were pretty new. Um, I have a colleague. It's, it, you know, it's so strange how things come to us. Uh, I have a colleague um, who has a sister who's connected to Sharla and she got one of the little nativity sets and uh, Karen called me and she says, no, you got to connect with these people. Um, and so we did. And yeah, a wonderful relationship has developed. Absolutely. Sharla, I'd love to give you the chance to, to introduce yourself to our listeners, to tell them a little bit about your story and about master's handicraft. What, what should our listeners know about you? Well, um, I've, 
I'm actually an educator. And so I was an elementary teacher in the U.S. and um, was starting, I wasn't dissatisfied. I'd only been teaching three years, but was starting to feel kind of a a travel bug, I guess, and um, began to explore opportunities for living and working overseas. I was single at the time. And um, so the country of Kyrgyzstan came up and I wasn't really interested, but had some really great friends coming here to do just an exploratory trip to see what opportunities for volunteering could be over here. So I came with them after a little bit of convincing and decided to teach English over here. Um, so that's how I got here to Kyrgyzstan. And how did, how did you start Master's Handicrafts? How did, how did that develop? Is it just something that ha- came about organically or did you set out to start this, this business? Um, absolutely did not set out to start a business. I'm, yeah, again, an educator and love teaching, but I was, I also came, you know, to build relationships with people and I was building some good relationships with the children that I was teaching for English, but I wasn't really meeting a lot of uh, adults and other women. My teaching was keeping me kind of busy. And I, for some reason, I wasn't meeting the parents, um, of the kids that I was working with. So um, when I met my husband, um, someone, we went to a conference actually, and someone approached us saying, hey, you live in Kyrgyzstan, right? Don't, isn't that where they make those great nativity yurts? And we said, yeah. And they said, Do, would you be at all interested in helping us get some of those back to the US every so often? And we thought, oh, sure, we could do that. We don't know anything about how to do it, but we know that they're already being made. And so it would just be a matter of connecting with the makers and getting them shipped out. And then it just developed from there. Again, we were looking for different ways to make relationships with adults and not just kids. And that seemed a natural way um, to shift over to doing the business. So you don't have any prior background in sort of in, in business or business development, this was all new to you? Absolutely, completely new, yeah. Wow, <laughs> wow. Charlotte, I'm interested to know because I, I you know, I think of uh, Kristen and myself and start, again, and we weren't anticipating starting a business either. It, you know, we totally right. understand these things just kind of kind of happen and come to you. Um, but what has been your greatest challenge since you're not a business person? What's been your greatest challenge in business? Probably the accounting, the the money side of things. <laughs> Boy, can Kristen and I resonate with that? <laughs> yes, I'm absolutely. so glad. Oh yes, no, uh, we were gifted with uh, the partnership of uh, a wonderful lifelong friend who uh, who mm. took our finances into hand. Uh, so shout out to Jackie Robinson for that. But um, yes, we totally, totally understand that. I'm interested as well, you know, as you and I have talked over the years about how these relationships have developed. You've made relationships, not just with the women who make the nativity scenes, but you've now developed relationships with women who make the yarn, women who care for the sheep, Um, It's one of the most intriguing things about your story. Tell me how that developed. You know, none of these relationships have we necessarily sought out. Um, So, you know, some people believe in luck or I prefer to call it um, divine appointment maybe, or yeah, even, I don't really think there's anything coincidental about how I met up with some of these different women. It was, um, you know, we had a need with the business and by divine help, we maybe met somebody through somebody else that was able to connect us with a certain person who was skilled in this or that. Um, so yeah, all of the women that have, that we have relationships with now, with now um, are, have just happened that way. They were either in need or had that certain skill or, or a little bit of both. and we had work at that time to give them when we met them. And um, so it just, it's always seemed like a natural fit when we've added somebody new, it's been either our need or their need and it's all just come together pretty smoothly. 
So tell give us some more details about Masters Handicrafts. What types of things do you guys make? How do you collaborate with the, the women who make these things? You know, are they full-time employees or do you, uh, you know, hire them sort of per project? How is the business structured and what is, what is sort of the day-to-day like? Um, so I'm the only one kind of managing things, but I definitely collaborate with the women. And then my husband helps me a lot as well. So um, we take work by orders. We have chosen um, not to risk a huge amount by creating a lot of inventory. We work when we get orders from buyers like Threads um, by Nomad. And so, um, but the women all understand that upfront and they are so happy because we pay fair wages. Um, whereas if they were to go just work in a shop or some other like a cafe, they would be working very long hours and very low wages. So they're almost happy to just wait until those orders come in. And they are paid per piece, not hourly. They're not full-time employees, but um, uh, they, they all seem to be okay with that. They can work from home. We don't have a factory or a facility where they come. They can get supplies from us. We can give up to half of the order amount to help them cover whatever materials they might need, or we provide the materials ourselves. And then they can work from home and be with their children if their children are small or, um, yeah, uh, not have to be out and about necessarily trying to find a living wage. Yeah. Mom, can you talk about fair wages? And I know we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but explaining what a fair wage is, and then also maybe speaking to the importance of this ability for women in particular to work from home. Um, And we've heard that from several others of our, of our guests. And so just speak to those two things. Yeah. As soon as uh, Charlotte uh, (laughs) said fair wage, I thought, Ooh, ooh, got to jump in here. Um, So, you know, for the, for our, our listeners to just to be clear, there are, there are three uh, stages of wage, if you will. There's minimum wage, which is, you know, as we all know, um, by whatever government, the minimum that must be paid per hour. Um, and then there is fair wage, um, which means that you are really getting um, for whatever work you're doing, the wage that is fair, that the work you're doing, the skill level that you have, um, perhaps, you know, sometimes here in the States, of course, that goes with education. Um, So it's fair, but fair wage does not necessarily mean a sustainable or a living wage. Mm -hmm. That means that you are actually making enough money to care for yourself. And, you know, it's usually based on like a family of four, okay, to take care of your basic family. Um, It's really important, particularly for women. Uh, When you talk about things like global poverty, global migration, um, which of course Threads by Nomad and the off-ramp is intricately linked to those two ideas, those things are offset by having a fair wage. When you don't have a fair wage, you become vulnerable. When you are vulnerable to a systemic poverty, that opens up the risk of exploitation on a number of levels. Um, In some countries, it can lead to women feeling like they're going to be forced into, uh, say, for instance, uh, the sex trade, or it can lead to a risk for labor trafficking. Um, It can lead to the risk of needing to migrate. You can't live where you're at. You can't make it where you're at. And we, there's all kinds of risks that are involved with that type of migration. Women are particularly vulnerable to this. It's not to say that men are not, but women are particularly vulnerable because globally women make less money. Um, Women have a lower education. Women have access to fewer resources in order to to make their lives uh, uh, stable. And so they are susceptible to these types of, of vulnerabilities and risks. Something as simple as a fair wage can change that. 
Now, what fair wage means to our consumers is that many things. One, when you purchase something, uh, somebody has paid for it somewhere, somehow, some way. And if you think you've gotten something for nothing, uh, not really. It's just been paid for by another person um, in, in probably a not so desirable way. So you are purchasing with the knowledge that you have done no harm, right? Um, that's kind of become one of my mantras, do no harm. It's not to say you know the right thing to do all the time, but you do your best to do no harm. Um, you also then are assuring on uh, it, the more of us that do this and the more that we are conscious of this, we are assuring that women and men where they're at are able to provide for themselves and their families and reducing, reducing the risks of the possibility of migration or trafficking or poverty, et cetera. Um, so you're not only not doing harm, you are doing good. Um, and I could go on forever, as you know, uh, Kristen, about fair wage and sustainable wage and the risks involved. And, um, but I, that's one of the reasons I love Masters Handicrafts. That's one of the reasons we've loved working um, with Sharla is because we just know that not only are what we are bringing to our um, consumers, our clients, is, is done fairly and ethically, um, but Sharla is there in relationship with these women. So, you know, when catastrophe comes or when, uh, when they are facing some of the difficulties that we know they can face, um, Sharla's there on the ground um, helping mitigate the circumstances. I love that kind of relationship. Sharla, tell us a little bit more, just kind of backing up. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Kyrgyzstan. You know, it's not a country that most people are familiar with. You, you said, yourself said that when you first went, it wasn't totally on your radar. Tell us a little bit about the country, the people um, who live there, and especially the people who work with you. The country itself is amazing. It is, we call it the Switzerland of Central Asia. There are it's 90% mountainous, I think. So huge mountains. And we can walk out into our garden and see the mountains clearly most days and are absolutely blessed to have that surrounding us. Um, it's a country of about 6 million people, so not big. Um, there are a few larger cities, but they still feel small. Like you can run into people on the street that you normally wouldn't expect to see, but it's just, it has a it's still a small town feel. The main nationality is Kyrgyz and they're uh, nomadic Turkic Mongolian descent. And then there are 80 different minority ethnic groups here. So lots of different languages and, and looks of people and, and different cultures being expressed. And so it's really rich um, to be here. And we, we work with anybody. Um, we try to find those that are maybe vulnerable, like what we've talked about, maybe those with the risk of being trafficked or having to go overseas to find that living wage or fair wage. Um, we try to find maybe some that are um, physically in need with limitations, um, but have the skills to work with their hands, um, perhaps socially marginalized just because they maybe haven't had work in the past. And so they're not given credit in the community or not given a lot of respect. Um, we try to look for those um, kinds of people, but it doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. So in, in the emails back and forth, just figuring out the, the logistics of this podcast, I was really struck by something that you wrote that um, Master's Handicrafts is, is more than just a business that sort of sells things and, and buys things, that you um, are more than just an economic boost, those were your words, by encouraging them in their relationships, their personal lives, their skill development, et cetera. Can you speak to that too? How, how, does, how do you do that as part of Master's Handicrafts? How do you address sort of the social personal needs of the people that, that work with you? Um. Yeah, that's a good, great question. Um, we 
we have created different WhatsApp groups and trying to connect the women with each other and um, just for emotional support. So if someone's having a hard time, we get on our WhatsApp group and just try to boost that other person. Um, we, because the women are kind of spread out, some are in pretty remote locations. Um, that's one of the best ways that we can communicate is through WhatsApp and um, yeah, just checking in on them. Those that do live uh, closer by um, because, so I'll just say I'm almost, well, I'm 50. And so I'm almost in that older generation now. And so the younger women, I, I feel like I can speak into their lives personally just because not only because I'm kind of the boss, but because I'm an older woman in their life. And so I've been finding, trying to find my words to when I notice something, maybe they're struggling with something to just be bold and share um, what I've learned in my life and maybe what might be helpful to them looking for different ways like that. Um, yeah, you were asking mainly about the emotional side of things, right? Yeah, emotional and social. I mean, have you mm. have you encountered situations in which um, you were able to help someone address uh, a physical or social need through masters or because of masters handicrafts or the connections you have? Um, I'm not sure if this quite fits what you're asking, but um, there was a one of our gals. She was um, she found out that her husband was. Um, going out on her and was really causing a lot of trouble in the community against her. And so she actually needed to leave that town and she stayed with us for a couple of days and we were just able to try to love on her and provide some basic needs. And then she found um, another town to live in. Um, and all during that time, we kind of gave a little extra attention and maybe some extra work to her, just knowing that she was providing solely for those three children. Thankfully, the husband um, came back to her and has, um, has changed his life, it seems. And so they are back together. The kids have their both their dad and their mom in the house. And we're really thankful for that. Um, we didn't necessarily like intervene with him and try to, um, convince him to come back, but a lot of prayer and um, encouragement on her end. And I, I think in some ways that helped her through that really hard time. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, one of the things that came to light in the, the survey that we sent out to, to a lot of our donors at the end of last year was that they want to better understand the types of needs that sort of our artisans face. So, you know, the people that you work with, the, these women, what kinds of other than just the very rea reality of needing to make money to support their families, what are the types of challenges that they face, the needs that they have? Um, can you explain to us sort of what their lives are like? Yeah, I think um, they, they probably are concerned for their children's education but it is a free system here. So um, in that sense, they don't, economically, they don't need to worry about um, sending their kids through, um, through high school. Then beyond that, they would want to probably send them to a university. So that would take some extra finances and worrying about, I think they worry about corruption in general in society. Um, so um, they're always at risk for maybe being manipulated into something that would harm them. And so we, we try to do education when we, we don't have a specific education program, but we try to notice things around us. And we do have some resources and people that we can call on if we see certain situations and you know try to connect um, our women with a specialist if necessary. Um, there are a lot of health concerns, healthcare isn't great here in Kyrgyzstan. So even if you have money, you might not get the best treatment. So we try to also connect them with, um, with reputable doctors when we can. We have an emergency medical fund that if something comes up that is really unexpected and they don't have the funds to cover it, we're able to contribute toward um, getting the best care possible here. Um, so hopefully that answers that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot. I, I had a conversation with someone not too long ago and they were um, expressing sort of the need for social change and and how it was, I can't remember the context of the conversation exactly, but basically they, they were like, you know, we're really, really walking that line between sort of uh, business and, and doing good. And, and I stopped them and I said, well, why can't the business itself do good? Why can't business be a source of good? And mom and I have for a long time now taken that approach that business can be a, an agent for social change and, and a, an agent for good doing. Mom, can you speak to that a little bit? I feel like there are a lot of parallels between what Charlotte's doing at Master's Handicrafts and what we do through the off-ramp and Threads by Nomad and this hopefully changing concept that business is at its core, the antithesis of social change, of positive social change. I don't think I knew this or would have said this, uh, you know, 30 something years ago when I began my career. But I've come to a point where I believe absolutely that business is at the heart of what can do even maybe the most good, not not minimizing the need for social workers and not minimizing the need for programs, et cetera. But when you look at what can change a cycle of poverty, when you look at what can change uh, a cycle of migration, business, producing goods, um, having a business, making a wage, um, these, these are the things that can alleviate that. The other reason I think business should be and can be at the heart of it, very few people want to just be given a handout. Very few people want to feel like they are indebted to somebody else. Um, that lacks dignity, right? Um, yeah, sometimes it's necessary. Uh, the off-ramp when COVID began, um, had to institute for the first time uh, an emergency relief fund because COVID brought crisis. So sometimes crisis comes. But when you're in your day-to-day, dignity says, I am capable, I am able, I want to care for myself and my family, and I want to have the, the respect that comes with recognizing I've got skills, I've got talent, I've got something to contribute. So in this way, business is not just helping them um, achieve something financially, it is helping them achieve something of self-worth. When you have that kind of feeling about yourself, you're going to be a more productive, uh, a bigger contributor to the society wherever you're at. So that's why you and I, Uh, when we first began this, uh, focused on refugees here in the United States, because they want to be contributing members to the society where they live, and they want to do it in a way where, um, yeah, where dignity is is maintained. Business is integral to this. Um, Another way that I think business is really important, you, you do still need, like I said, our social workers, we need our social programs, Without business, um, we don't have contributors to those things. So a business not only can be doing good, they can be giving and continuing that good. Uh, So on every level, I think business um, plays a key role in uh, the social justice that we want to see in our world. So with that, Mom, and and thank you for for sort of mapping that out for us. And I I think... It's been a joy for me to see you not travel that journey, not really fully understand in the way that that I I believed business could could be a source of good. However, many years ago when we first began began thinking about um, Threads by Nomad, but really seeing you come to a place where where you believe that it can be one of the greatest sources of good. That's that's been really um, empowering to to watch. I we are beginning 
to move the off-ramp forward after a move to the East Coast during a global pandemic and uh, all of the ways that we had to pivot because of that. And one of the things that we are embarking on is a sort of new version of this partnership with Sharla and Masters Handicrafts. Can you explain to our listeners what we have in the works? Sure, I would love to. Well, first, let me say that one of the reasons the off-ramp was birthed is because we began to realize with Threads by Nomad that we were doing a lot that wasn't just business, right? Um, That wasn't just uh, making goods and selling them or uh, wholesaling and and selling goods. Um, We were getting engaged in relationships just like Sharla does um, that, that really became the work of a nonprofit. But as the off-ramp kind of grew, began to develop, we realized that some of our partners, we could offer them things that might not be available to them. Um, Stateside marketing, a marketing arm, um, social media knowledge and how to use that to to further their marketing, Um, product design. Um, Kristen, you have uh, experience in um, in the fashion industry and just a, a knowledge of this is what will work. This is what won't work um, way, way more than I do. And, and then being able to say, okay, this, yeah, this will work, but it needs to be tweaked this way. Um, I think of a, a couple of our relationships in Uganda where we've been working with them on product development. Um, and so that, that really is not the work of a business like Threads by Nomad. And so we just um, asked Sharla, can we go a little bit deeper in this? Um, I, I, if, I'm, if I'm correct, because you're the one that worked with Sharla on this, the, the nativity wreath is one of the results of this, um, which by the way, guys, they came in this last week. I'm so crazy in love, Sharla, with this wreath. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, it's, it's just, oh, it's just beautiful. I just really love it. It's, it's not, um, it's not overdone. It's got a lot of simplicity to it. And yet it's, uh, it's just really beautiful. So thank you for that. But then to say, okay, look, we not only will help you develop the product, we'll help you with the quality control. We'll help you with, you know, maybe changing the design. We're tweaking it. Uh, but then because we have threads, once that gets to a certain point, we're able to use threads to market those goods for them. So just going a little bit deeper into this, um, Sharla, have I accurately portrayed that um, um, on your end? Oh, yes, absolutely. All of it, yeah, has been right on. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, I I just have been so inspired by by what you are doing and, and by the, frankly, the quality of product that you and your your colleagues are able to to produce it is um, that is one of our biggest hurdles in partnering with groups overseas is businesses overseas is is mm-hmm. ensuring that the finished product is something that is is to Western standards and will sell um, and and I, I'm not sure maybe you can answer this I, I maybe because you are from the West but even so we, we are not able to achieve such high quality product with all of our artisans why do, what do you attribute that to mm-hmm. on your end um, I think per- perhaps because um, I am on the ground with the women and I can, Sometimes I can send things back. It's not always terribly easy if they're one of those that are more remote, but we work really hard. And I think the women have a certain pride. We've, I'm not exactly sure how we've developed that, but um, we've, yeah, developed that consciousness of, or awareness of quality and, and they, they want the work, they need the work. And so they're pretty willing for whatever reason to do what we ask them to do, even if it might go against some of their color preferences, like they they might not put together the colors that we choose for them. Um, and sometimes what they put together is really amazing themselves as well. So um, I think it's this, yeah, just overall collaboration and wanting to put good things out there that people will love. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly do. I mean, we've had wild success with with just about everything that we we have ordered from you all, and I'm really excited for the new product that's being developed and is is coming. And I'm I'm excited to partner with you more through the off ramp. A couple of lingering questions that that I want to throw your way before before we finish this episode. I am very aware of how when you take on something like master's handicrafts and it does sort of come about organically, you're very much sort of learning on the job, right? It's, and like you said, the accounting is, you just kind of have to figure it out as you go because this thing started that you were unprepared for and probably feel unprepared for. What are some of the big lessons that you've learned since starting master's handicrafts? What, what are some of the big takeaways? I know I can't do everything by myself. So even though sometimes I think it might be easier to try to do it by myself, I, I have to let other people sometimes uh, step in and, and help me. Um, I've absolutely in more recent years appreciated um, even just more the ability to network with other people through social media or um, video calls other people doing the same kind of thing overseas that we're doing and really get feedback and input and just encouragement and support from them. That has been a huge boost for me personally and through the business. Um, And I think maintaining um, a desire for honesty and transparency. um, It's not always easy, but I can walk away from situations with a clear conscience. And I think that helps me, um, want to keep going, just seeing certain hurdles that we overcome just because we hold to our um, morals and ethics. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. I think the the piece of not being able to do everything yourself is is so true and is a lesson I'm still learning, frankly. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I have my my ongoing list of of things that one day I'll get to, and frankly, one day I need to sit down and say, "Really, will that day come? Like, will I will I get to these things, or <laughs> is there someone better to to support me in doing them?" Um, I always and mm. well before before I get to this, actually, I was doing some research. I, I do some consulting on the side, and I was doing some research about questions that one should ask a potential client. And I thought this one was actually really great. And I wanted to begin using it as part of all of my interviews. Is there anything that we haven't asked you yet that we should have asked you? Yeah, I think I'm glad I was able to talk about the integrity part because corruption is so big here and in a lot of other countries. And I think I'm really excited to have the opportunity to show the women that they can function honestly and they want, they want to, but sometimes they feel forced into giving into the corruption and bribery around them. But um, yeah, we really try to stick to our um, ethics on that. And, and then we talk about that with them and how maybe hard it was to get through this certain process or get this certain document. But um, I think they see when we hold to our beliefs, then we're often blessed for it and rewarded for it in different ways. So, um, yeah, that's maybe. Yeah. I, expounding. I think that's great. And, um, having lived in, in places and been more aware of, um, cultures where bribery and corruption are more prevalent. I think it's hard for Americans to understand just how pervasive it can be in other parts of the world and how difficult it can be to overcome and to not succumb to. Mom, did you want to add anything to that? Well, I think that, um, again, this is where ethical business can make a difference. Once you learn, hey, this can happen, we can move forward, and it doesn't mean that we need to act in ways that we sacrifice our integrity. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for that, Sharla. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And this is the way that I always end our, our episodes because I think it's, it's how, it's, it's the right note to end on. Where do you find hope? Great question. Um, so personally, um, my relationship with 
Jesus is what gives me hope for life. Um, so yeah, what the Bible teaches us about how to live our lives. And, um, and that filters into pretty much everything that we try to do um, in our relationships here and um, how we manage the business. Um, so, and I just, yeah, I think that would be the basis of basically everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how can our listeners support Master's Handicrafts? Of course, you know, they can go to threadsbynomad.com and, and look for, for the products that we sell, but are there other ways that they can support you? I guess they, yeah, if they want to do research about Kyrgyzstan and see what a lovely country it is and um, share the products that they do buy um, with others and just, yeah, do a little education about um, this little country. And I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but um, if they ever have ideas that they would want to pass on to you um, to pass on to us for new products, we're always open for that or even just different ways to display things or have we ever tried this or that, that would be, that's always helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're on social media, you're on Facebook and Instagram. I'm pretty sure. Right. Both. Yes. And, and what are, how can, do you, do you know your account names? How, or should we just include them in the show notes? It is the master's handicrafts for Facebook. Um, And then Instagram is, the mastershandicrafts.kg altogether. Okay. And we'll be sure to include those in, in the show notes. Um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to chat with you. It has uh, made me even more committed to this partnership, this relationship, and to supporting you in any way that the off-ramp and Threads by Nomad and us personally uh, that we can. Um, Mom, anything else? No, just it's been a joy, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're very grateful. Thank you for everything that you do and for the ways that you encourage and support us as well. Thank you. You guys are amazing and we're so thankful for you. Thanks for listening to the Off Ramps podcast. If you were inspired to act during this conversation, you can find us and learn more at theofframp.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Helplessness and hopelessness do not have to define your future or the world's. Become a change maker today.